I want to just show you something at the uh, tail end of Psalm 22 and kind of a, a, maybe a heading for the psalm. It says, all the earth, Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth, verse 27, 22, 27, will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. All the ends of the earth are the concern here that they will remember and turn to the Lord. Now, we have a memory problem uh, as humans. We are so quick to forget the God who made us, the one who breathed life into us. We are quick to forget sometimes as individuals, sometimes as families, sometimes as a nation, who it is that we belong to, who it is that we are to glorify. And so this is a key verse, I think, in, in uh, Psalm 22. Let all the ends of the earth remember and let us turn to the Lord. Now, if you uh, have a New American Standard Bible like I do, you'll see a heading, and it says, for the choir director at the top of Psalm 22, upon Aheleth Hash Hahar. And all God's people said, what? Well, if you have a New King James Bible, it says, to the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn. When we did an overview of the book of Psalms, or what's called the Psalter, I mentioned to you that sometimes at the heading of a psalm, you will be told the tune uh, of the music. And here we do know the tune, and there are some scholars that believe the deer of the dawn was a secular tune of the time. And that, that music was taken by David and given words to it. And so this is not unusual. There are some songs even in church history that came out of some secular realms and were Christianized. And uh, that may be the case here as well. So that may be what uh, is going on here with the deer of the dawn. At least some believe it was a secular song. What does this mean? Well, we can say that this is a psalm says uh, Gusick, sung to the greatest musician. No, it's, notice that it's uh, set to the chief musician. Many believe that that's God himself. To an unknown tune, but by the sweet psalmist of Israel, that's David. Yet in it, David sings as more than an artist, but as one of the greatest prophets ever to speak, pointing more to his greater son, the greater David, Jesus the Messiah, than even to himself. Some have applied the deer of the dawn language or the, um, the more difficult pronunciation that you saw as a wounded deer that suffers innocently, but the dawn of the morning brings relief. The older Jewish traditions of Psalm 22, the heading of Psalm 22, say that Ahaleth Shahar means the glory cloud. That is the Shekinah glory, which was visibly present in the tabernacle in the midst of Israel. As the dawning of the morning is compare, compared by them with the horns of the deer, because the rays of the light appear like horns, they speak of those two words meaning the dawning of redemption. And that's just uh, some major views about the background of the psalm. Not that extremely important, but the dawning of redemption is a significant thought because this psalm is really about how our redemption was purchased. And it was purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, David authored this psalm 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And you're going to see the prophetic significance of it as you read the opening line with me. 
This is uh, Psalm 22, verse 1. It says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Now, David writes the psalm, and in the prophetic psalms and in prophetic passages, what you have is you have layers of meaning. And so sometimes when a prophecy is written about the coming Messiah, there could be a, an application to the immediate life of the author and even his family and his nation, and then a far fulfillment of something that will happen, for example, in the life of the nation in the future or in the life of the Messiah. Guys in the back, if you don't mind, can you check the air conditioning and just make sure it's where it needs to be? So um, there's what's called in biblical prophecy near-far fulfillment. You can see this in several of the prophecies in the book of Isaiah, for example, where there's a prophecy written and there's a fulfillment in the immediate lifetime of the prophet, and then 700 years later it gets fulfilled in the life of the Messiah. And that you can see, for example, in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, specifically about the virgin uh, being uh, with child and a, an ultimate reference to Jesus. Now, Jesus does mouth these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in the book of Matthew? And it's in Matthew 27. And Jesus mouths these words from the cross. It says, uh, you don't have to turn there. Matthew 27, 45. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Matthew 27, 46, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, they say that when someone would quote the opening line of a psalm, the opening line would be a reflection of the whole psalm. So many scholars and commentators that study Psalm 22 say that when Jesus quotes the opening line of the psalm from the cross, he's essentially saying that the whole psalm speaks to his experience on the cross. So by uh, quoting the opening line, you could say that Psalm 22 will be experienced by Jesus in a wider measure. And I think you're going to see that as well as uh, we study tonight. But in the immediate setting, it is David and the first several verses, in fact, uh, a good chunk of, uh, I think, mo moving into about verse 21 or so, is a lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we know that there's passages in our Bible that say God will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. And whenever you see a double cry of something, my God, my God, or Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, there's an emphasis. And here, because it's a negative, because it's a cry or a, and a lament, it, it speaks of intensity. It's a cry, an intense cry. It, it might be something like this. If we were going through a tough time or we experienced a blow in our lives and we fell to our knees and we said, my God, my God, that's kind of what David is expressing here. And what's interesting about that intensity is that that is picked up by Jesus from the cross as he's crucified. My God, my God, and the question, why? And from this we learn that it's not unbiblical to ask God why. 
David asked God why, Jesus asked God why, uh, then you can ask God why. Now, I know that some of us (laughs) well-meaning Bible teachers sometimes say, don't ask God why, ask God what. And what we mean by that is you should never ask God why, don't question God, just say, what are you trying to show me, Lord? And that sounds super spiritual, and I'd like to tell you that that's what I do every time I have a problem. What are you trying to teach me, Lord? Mr. Spiritual. But that's not always how I react to problems. Anybody else out there? I often say, why? If I don't voice it, I'm at least thinking it. So I want you to know that um, we all go through that. Uh, We have the why question. It comes up over and over again. And, uh, you know, there's not always easy, immediate answers, is there, to our questions. And what we're going to find in this psalm is that we can at least take some refuge in the whys of life by what we do know about God. And I think that's what we're going to find in this psalm is that even though David and ultimately Jesus asks, why God, where are you when I'm going through this, we will find solace in the rest of the psalm. And we are going to find that ultimately God does answer David and ultimately the greater David, Jesus. But right now in verse 1, if we camp here just for a second, we can see a double cry, the word why, and then the question essentially is, where are you? I feel forsaken. And even though as Christians, we could say, I could quote a Bible verse, Hebrews 13, and it says that God will never leave me, nor will he ever forsake me. And in the original language, it is very strong. It is God will never, ever leave you, and he will never, ever forsake you. And we can quote that, and a lot of us know it by heart. There are still times that we feel forsaken. And minimally, that's what Jesus is going through on the cross. Although, I will tell you that anybody who's ever looked at the the situation on the cross and the darkness and what Jesus went through there, and even though some of it's a mystery, the minimum is that Jesus felt forsaken. But many scholars walk that even farther and believe that at some point when Jesus is on the cross and darkness falls upon the land and he becomes a curse for us and he bears the weight of our sin and drinks the cup of the wrath of God, he is experiencing what it means to be forsaken. Scholars have put it this way, that the smile of God turned away from him or some even songs say the face of the Father turned away. And I don't know, honestly, how far to push that because we're dealing with the triune nature of God. We're talking about God the Son, God the Father, the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus exactly experienced at the cross in his humanity and deity, you know, I want to be very careful in the way that I would speak about that. But I will tell you that from these words, minimally what we can say is that since Jesus quotes this, In Matthew 27, on the cross, Jesus feels forsaken. And I want to just give you a practical point for a second, because we have a high priest, Hebrews 4 says, that can sympathize and empathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tested like us, tempted like us, yet without sin. And so when you go to God, and you might say, Lord, it doesn't feel like you're anywhere near me. It doesn't feel like when I pray that you're hearing me. Or you may feel forsaken in another relationship. Or maybe you feel distant from God. That's not something that Jesus can't understand. And that's not something that Jesus hasn't personally gone through. Which is encouraging, isn't it? 
that he knows that feeling, that he's experienced that. And that's not just, you know, the experience on the cross. That's, of course, you know, what he suffered under Judas's uh, betrayal and Peter's denial. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Or to put it another way, why are you so far from helping me? Why are you so far from my groaning? I feel abandoned. I feel, if we go with the opening explanation of the deer, like a wounded deer that's dying all alone. And so what we have conveyed as the Holy Spirit comes upon David is details of Christ's passion on the cross as he suffered for us. James Montgomery Boyce says, we can be fairly certain that Jesus was meditating on the Old Testament during the hours of his suffering and that he saw his crucifixion as a fulfillment of Psalm 22, particularly, says Boyce, close quote. And so everyone was casting insults upon him and he might, we might put it this way, not, not you too, Father, not you too. Everyone's forsaken me. Judas has betrayed me. Uh, Peter has denied me. All of my innermost followers have been scattered on this night. Not you too. Not you, my God, my God. You know, if I had to try to uh, navigate this life without God... And, and if, if it could be a reality that somehow you would lose that relationship or somehow that God would say, I'm done with you, that would be such a painful reality. And uh, when, when Jesus suffers on the cross, and this is where I tell you we want to try to be as precise as possible, and darkness falls upon the land, and the earth is quaking and the sun doesn't shine at midday. Uh, Jesus is experiencing some, some sense of separation, some reality of forsakenness, and I'll let Spurgeon speak to it. Spurgeon considered this question with an emphasis on the word you. He says, I can understand why traitorous Judas or timid Peter should be gone, but thou, my God, my faithful friend, how Canst thou leave me? This is the worst of all, yea, worse than all put together. Hell itself has for its fiercest flame the separation of the soul from God. And yet we know that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And, you know, there's some classic songs that say, and the father turned his face away. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to be dogmatic on exactly what happened there, but we do know that as Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, as he is the substitutionary atonement, as he who knew no sin became sin for us, or the sin offering, as he was treated on the cross as though he had committed all of our sins, as, as he's experiencing the wrath of God, theologically we all wrestle with the the implications of that. Jesus is tasting uh, death. He is tasting the, the wrath of Almighty God. He is being treated on the cross as though he had committed the collective sins of all humanity for all time. And that is hard uh, to explain. 
our sins separated us from God, and now Jesus experiences the dark separation of what sin means. Spurgeon says, Yet Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, but also the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for sinful humanity. This was the blackness and darkness of his horror. Then it was that he penetrated the depths of the caverns of suffering. To be forsaken means to have the light of God's countenance and the sense of his presence, says voice, eclipsed, which is what happened to Jesus as he bore the wrath of God against sin for us. And then Spurgeon, one more time, says, it was necessary that he should feel the loss of his father's smile, for the condemned in hell must have tasted that bitterness. And therefore the father closed the eye of his love, put the hand of justice before the smile of his face, and left his son to cry, my God, my God, why have you left me all alone? Yet Isaiah 53.10 says that pleased the Lord to crush him because he would become a sin offering for us. And this, my brethren, is the cost of the cross. And I don't think that we wrestle enough with the significance of the horror that Jesus felt. And it's not just the public humiliation of the hours upon the cross. It's not just the betrayal of friends and enemies. It's not the mo- just the mockery or the agony of what crucifixion would do to somebody. It's all of that plus this spiritual uh, situation that he is going through as he drinks the cup of God's wrath, as he deals with the darkness of spiritual death. Now, I, again, want to be very careful in the way in which I communicate this because, um, you know, Jesus is tasting death for each one of us, but I will let you wrestle with what that meant at the cross. But I will tell you this, it was from the cross that Jesus finished our redemption because it is from the cross that he says, it is finished, and we'll see this at the end of the psalm, which is paid in full. Why don't you just look ahead for a second so you get a little encouragement. It says, they will come and will declare his righteousness to all people who will be born, that he has performed it. You can see this as a bookend on verse 1. Or, it is done or it is finished. You could safely translate it that way. And so, verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, and I have no rest. Psalm 38, 21 and 22 says, Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. A quick note on structure. The suffering will be laid out in verses 1 through 21. The glory which follows the suffering will be laid out in verses 22 through 31. And then the words we just read in verse 31, he has performed it or it is done or it's a done deal. Now when you're in a situation like David and he's the one that penned the psalm and you're feeling the heaviness of life and even feeling forsaken and maybe even forsaken by God, what do you do? (laughs) What do you 
do yourself or what would you share with somebody about what to do when you're feeling this way? Well, we have uh, a strong directive in verse 3. And notice what David does. He says, yet, but, 22.3, you are holy. O thou who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. If you have a King James, it says, Thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Now, you may not have seen this before, but it is in the famous Psalm 22 that we get the idea that God inhabits the praises of his people. And one of the things that we can do when we're feeling the heaviness of life and even feeling spiritually like we're far from God or he's far from us or disconnected or spiritually dry is turn our attention to who God is. And what we see in verse 3 is that God is what? He is holy. Now my immediate thought when I think about the holiness of God is I think of that's why God judges sin and that's why he is pure and majestic and above his creation. And all of that is true. But the holiness of God is also a positive because since God is holy, that means God is good. That means God is righteous. And some of the things that I need to do when I'm going through difficult times, and we all will, is I need to turn to what I know about God. I need to remember God's nature. God's nature is love. You know, we often hear people say from 1 John, God is love, and that's true. But God's nature is captured more often in the word holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God's holiness speaks of his distinction from his creation, that he is pure and undefiled, and that he made the world, and that he dwells in unapproachable light, and he is unique, as unique can be. And David now turns and says, God, you're holy, and you, even though I'm going through a tough time, you're enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And remember, David became the king of Israel. It was his nation. You inhabit the praises of your people. And I just want to tell you that as we take a shift in the psalm, a pause away from the pain and restlessness, it's a shift away from my pain and back to God. It's refocusing my gaze on the author and perfecter of my faith. And Jesus since we believe that by quoting the first part of the psalm, he was able to do this even from the cross. Um, this is what we need to do. David was able to do this in his situation. And we bear some metaphorical crosses, right? We go, we take up our cross and we follow him. Sometimes we say, my cross is my boss. Sometimes we say, my cross is my in-laws. Well, we're not going to go there tonight. Uh, but whatever it may be, um, we turn our gaze back to God. We refix our eyes. In fact, the language in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, when it says fixing your eyes, it means to look away from what you were looking at and look to God. So it means look away from the thing that's stumbling or distracting you or so easily entangling you and fix your eyes back on Jesus. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes when life is heavy is to fix our, our gaze back where it belongs. But that's what David is doing. 1 Peter 3.15 is a familiar verse. It says, But sanctify Christ as Lord, remember what it says? In your hearts. And then it says, And always be ready to give an answer, a reason for the hope that you have. Now, I want you to hear the first part of 1 Peter 3.15 
maybe with fresh ears. Sanctify Christ as Lord, where? In your hearts. Now, you don't make him Lord. He's already King of kings and Lord of lords, but you have to regularly set him apart as Lord, where? In your heart. You have to re-sanctify his lordship in your life. Everybody with me? You have to make that official from your end. You need to re-enthrone him every day and maybe every moment of every day. Amen? You need to say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life, and I believe you are on the throne. And him being enthroned upon the praises of Israel is an interesting thought. The Hebrew word here is a word, uh, I believe it's pronounced yashab, or yasab, and it means to dwell, to remain, to sit, or to uh, abide. Um, a little debate about, about the word, uh, because it ha can have the idea of a king kind of moving to his throne and being enthroned, but it also has the idea of dwelling or abiding. And I'll just say this, we don't re-enthrone God as king in heaven, right? He's always on his throne. But one thing that worship does for us is it reminds us of where God is. Amen? So maybe a good way for us to think about it, just to put it simply, is that when I worship, God gets re-enthroned in my heart. And I sense that when I worship, and I'm talking not here just about music, but of course it, that's a big part of it, just the worship we just did, musical worship. He gets re-enthroned in my heart, and have you noticed, when I, and this is what I experience, when I worship, he touches me back. So for those of you who come late to the church service and you don't dig the singing thing, you need to learn how to worship. Because you are missing a big part of what it means to commune with God when you don't worship with music. And by the way, you are reading a song right now need to know that every psalm that you read was a song set to music, remember? And so a key component of your Christian life is going to be worship, and it will be musical connection with God. He is the chief musician, if you will. And one of the ways that you re-commune with God and you sense His presence is in the time of music and worship. And that's why we say that worship leaders often bring us to the throne of God. We know what we're saying, right? We're saying that the music and the words and calling upon the name of the Lord in a corporate body, there's something significant and beautiful and precious about that, that there's, there's nothing like it. I've never experienced anything like it in the whole world. I have some songs I enjoy. You know, they might be songs from the past or whatever. I like the tune, I like the beat. But there is nothing like worshiping my God because there's a spiritual reality. And if we go with the King James translation, he inhabits our praises. There's something special that happens when we worship. Now, as he has turned his gaze to God, he goes back and he looks at a little bit of history of his people. He says, in thee, in God, our fathers trusted. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed. Now since David's writing about 1000 uh, BC, probably 
the immediate reference is to the uh, Exodus. Uh, but there's other situations that David could be talking about. But our fathers turned their trust to you and you were faithful. Now I can't help, since I'm an American citizen, to think about our own country's history. And with all the bumps and bruises and all the debates about the history and all that we could, we could say was wrong and uh, we did wrong, there was a heart at the beginning of this nation to worship God freely, to worship according to the dictates of one's conscience, to dedicate this country to God. In fact, the founders said they didn't believe that America could work unless the people of America were godly people and that they were reading their Bibles. And I'm just telling you, this was the founders' hearts. They believed that a constitutional republic could not work unless the people were really governed, self-governed by God. Everybody with me? Because when you have the kind of society that we have, ultimately what you're saying is it's a government for the people and by the people. And if the people can self-govern, if they can be under the dictates of the word of God, if they will follow God's ways because that's their desire, somebody doesn't have to tell them to do it. That's just what they want to do because they're in love with God. That's what will make this republic work. And that's why when people came and visited America, and I don't remember who the person was, but when they, you know, the, the famous quote, we look, I look for the greatness of America and this and this and this, and I actually found the greatness of America in its pulpits. Because in its pulpits, the word of God was ringing forth and there wasn't a bunch of, you know, nonsense going on and preachers were preaching and people were hearing and it was still imperfect. But the nation was at least largely not ashamed to say this is what we believe. And if you come here, we will love you and we will embrace you. But this is what we stand for. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way, to say that this is what we're about. And if you want to come here, this is, is what we believe. And so they cried to you and they were delivered. Why am I ignored? <laughs> the use of the plural pronoun of our fathers shows us how uh, Jesus, says one writer, this is Spurgeon, is one with his people even on the cross. Our fathers trusted in you. David, looking back to how God delivered but I, by contrast, six, I am a worm. Literally, you could render this because the Hebrew word is tola. I am the scarlet and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. Even though you delivered our fathers in the past, I feel like a worm. Now, I don't know if you, you guys think much about worms. I, I don't. But I do know that fishermen use worms. And I do know that sometimes if you're digging in your backyard, you might come across an earthworm or something. Think about the idea of a worm. That's kind of about as low as you can go, amen? They usually live underneath the soil. They usually are, they have, there's no consideration by humanity about a worm. I could care less about a worm, right? And get this, David, and the Messiah, Christ, feel like a worm. About as low as you can get. Now, if you've ever hit a low spot in your life, and I know we all have, and some of you may be there tonight. You might, you might be saying, I'm at the lowest point I've ever been. The Messiah understands. 
you have a great high priest who can sympathize because he felt like a worm. He felt like people could, could care less. They just would rather step on him than care about him. He felt as low as you can feel. The Hebrew word for worm is tola. It's spelled T-O-W-L-A in, as we transliterate the word. It's also translated scarlet 38 times in the Old Testament, crimson once. <clears throat> Listen to this. When someone wanted to dye something in those days, back in the day, they would take the worm, the tola, and grind it up. Then they would take the material they wanted to dye and dip it in. When the tola or the worm wants to reproduce, the female tola will climb up a tree, fasten itself to the tree onto a branch or limb of the tree, bear its eggs. The eggs then hatch and become larvae. The larvae then eat the body of the worm that birthed them. Thus the worm dies. The worm gives her life in the birthing of her young. Then a crimson spot a scarlet spot is left on the branch of that tree as the body has been consumed by the larvae. The New International Bible Encyclopedia tells us that the scarlet spot on the branch of that tree, uh, scarlet initially dries out, and get this, after three to four days, it actually changes colors into white or being as white as snow and the color then falls or flakes away off of the tree. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus dies on the tree, the blood-stained cross, to make us as white as snow. Though our sins be as scarlet, they will be what? Whiter than snow. He, he makes us pure. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so God who lives in the highest heights took on the lowest lows and he did it because God so loved the world that he gave. And Paul says he loved me and he gave himself up for me. He became the tola. He became the worm. Amazing. This is what he goes through on the cross. All who sneer, who, all who see me, this is verse 7 back in Psalm 22. All who see me snare at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. They say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. These words describe what we saw earlier. And I just mentioned it in passing, but you can write down Matthew 27, 27 through 31, and Matthew 27, 39 through 44. And essentially, as the people walk by the cross, they're wagging their head, and they're going, you who said that you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, you who claim to be the Son of God, yeah, you're the Son of God, huh? Come down from the cross, and we'll believe in you. You're a joke. That's what people did. They walked by and they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They spit upon him. And if you had the power that the Son of God had at the cross 
to send those people into eternal hell at that moment with a word, what would you have done? You call me a worm? I'll make you a worm. I'll send you a place to a place where the worm doesn't die. And you can, you can figure that out for the next couple million years. <laughs> but he doesn't. He doesn't repay evil for evil. Insult for insult, Peter says, while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. This is 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You were healed. That's what the psalmist is talking about. That's what Jesus goes through on the cross. Yet, thou art he who did bring me forth from the womb. Notice how he, he will go back and forth from his pain and sorrow and suffering, the reality of what he's going through, back to God, back to his hope, back to the author and perfecter of his faith. And this is what we do. You know, there are times when we go up and down, amen? I'd like to say that I'm just this perfectly smooth sailing individual, but that's not true. Now, I want to become as consistent as possible, but life goes like this, and this is how we can feel. And the psalmist shows us that he wrestles with his reality, but then goes back to God. He says, yet thou art he who did bring me forth from the womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, he says in Psalm 139. Thou did make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb, or as Jacob said it, you have been my shepherd my whole life. And so when he hits the low, he goes back to God. He says, this is what I do know. You had a plan for my life, even from my mama's womb. You called me. You separated me unto you. You showed me your mercy and grace. And despite what I'm going through right now, I will believe. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. You, please be near, because trouble is near. And there's none to help. Psalm 27, 9 says, Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Don't abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. Psalm 27, 9. And Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. A little bit more about what Jesus went through on the cross. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan, some believe that Bashan refers to the Gentiles or the Romans. They've encircled me. There are scenes uh, as Jesus goes through his trial and they put the crown of thorns upon his head where they're encircling him. And the, the language could mean that there's hundreds of soldiers around Jesus doing the mock coronation, the mock bowing. Hail, King of the Jews! Hitting him with blows in the head, forcing the crown of thorns on him. That's probably some of this language here, even around the cross. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening or an a roaring lion. You know, Satan is described as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Spurgeon says, the bull is the emblem of brutal strength that gores and tramples down all, the befo- all before it. That was Clark. And this is Spurgeon. The priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, rulers, and captains bellowed round the cross like wild cattle, fed in the fat and solitary pastures of Bashan. Full of strength and fury, they stamped and foamed around the innocent one and longed to gore him to death with their cruelties, close quote. And right now we have trouble on our streets, don't we? And we are seeing scenes around our nation that are so troubling and so heartbreaking. And many of us are asking big questions about what do we do now and what should the church do and how do we pray and what are the action steps that we need to take. And the Messiah went through that. He says, I am poured out like water. 14, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. When Jesus was about to die, the night before he died, he said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. David, writing of the Christ, says, I am poured out like water. He says, my blood will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, Matthew 26, 28. His life, here's the picture, is draining away. Uh, So much blood loss just from the beating that Jesus took with the whip prior to the crucifixion. All my bones are out of joint. Not a bone was broken, but Jesus was all messed up. You could imagine from everything he went through. The language of my heart is like wax. Many believe is referring to Jesus' ruptured heart. And even though Jesus gave up his spirit from the cross, it was uh, a Roman soldier who thrust a sword into Jesus' side. And many believe it pierced the pericardium And that's why blood and and water gushed out of his side. So some have said, you know, uh, I guess poetically, Jesus died of a broken heart. But Jesus gave up his spirit, but certainly his heart was pierced. And some believe this is why you have this language, my heart is like wax. I'll let you think about that one. My strength is dried up like a postured. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Crucifixion victims would have dry mouth and, of course, going through the horrors of death. And thou dost lay me in the dust of death. Just like Adam was told when he sinned, he had come from the dust and to the dust he would return. So the last Adam experiences the dust of death. And he does die. And he does go into the tomb and comes out, of course, as the prophecy says, but Jesus does taste death for each one of us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He did this in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to only go halfway. I'm going to cover the portion of the lament, and it'll take us up through 21. There's a few more things I want to show you. In verse 16, more uh, emblems of the suffering and um, mocking he takes at the cross. Dogs, in the ancient world, dogs ran in packs and largely ran as scavengers. Dogs have surrounded me. 
a band of evildoers has encompassed me. And then this amazing prophetic word, a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, they pierced my hands and my feet. Some of you may notice that there's an asterisk next to um, the idea of piercing, and uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but let me just say to you that it would appear that the uh, Persians, or possibly the Assyrians, invented crucifixion, and then the Romans uh, adopted it. Um, in fact, there's, when we went through the book of Esther, we see that they would impale people on something like a cross as a uh, death instrument. So this was picked up. Uh, but remember that when David's writing in 1000 BC, it, it would seem that crucifixion has not even been invented yet. So to have a prophecy that says they pierced my hands and my feet is amazing. And this is exactly what Jesus experiences. Now let me just share with you why there's sometimes an asterisk next to this. The Masoretic Hebrew text of Psalm 22, 16 doesn't say it pierced, it says as a lion. Yet the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, written in about 250 B.C., completed about 250 B.C., before Christ, long before the Christian era, renders the Hebrew text as saying pierced. This is Boyce. While the Masoretic text shouldn't be casually disregarded, there is good reason to side with the Septuagint, the Greek version, and almost every tra other translation here. It may even suggest that the Masoretic text was deliberately pointed in this direction, in the way it was by later Jewish scholars, to avoid what otherwise would be nearly inescapable prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion, close quote. So in other words, what is being said there is that there's a translation of the Hebrew here into lion because the implications, if the word is rendered pierced, my hands and my feet, is an unmistakable prophecy of crucifixion. And if you don't believe that Jesus can be the Messiah, you don't want it to say that. Everybody with me? And so that's that why we might see the bias in the, um, the way that this is rendered. And, you know, the way you read it, lion doesn't seem to work there anyway. But with all we've already seen, uh, whether it's pierced or lion, it's almost secondary because notice what comes next. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they what? They cast lots. More amazing prophecy, Matthew 27, 35 says, when they had crucified Jesus, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. How would Roman soldiers know what Psalm 22, 18 said? You think they read their Bible? I don't think so. But they were fulfilling prophecy because not one word of God will ever fail. And this is the amazing Bible that you hold in your hand, oftentimes, sadly, by many American Christians, often unread, often unstudied. But this book is the very living Word of God. And a thousand years later, they would cast lots for Jesus' garments in precise detail of a fulfillment of a prophecy a thousand years earlier. 
That is the power of the word of God. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then a note of positivity here, (laughs) which is going to lead us into our next study in Psalm 22. Thou does answer me. The wrath of God was the sword that fell on Jesus. He took the vengeance, uh, representing all men, if you will, as our substitutionary atonement. He took the sword. It came down on, on him so that we might be saved. And here as he cries out, the Father is going to hear him and he is going to answer him. Verses 20 and 21 reach the end of the first part of the psalm, the lament portion. We'll get into the celebratory section next time. As the plea goes heavenward for his soul and the enemy animals are named again, words like deliver and save are cried out. And God does answer him. The end of verse 21, thou does answer me. And I would say, oh, sweet relief. (laughs) In our uh, tough times, when God seems distant, he's not. He hasn't moved. He's still on his throne. Amen? And I know we're, brethren, I know we've gone through a crazy five, six months, right? This has been wild. There's been like nothing I think most of us have seen in our lifetime. And we're like, oh, Lord, what? is going to happen next, and where is the world going, and, and we felt maybe, you know, maybe this resonates with you because you're like, this is where I've been living. Well, here's the good news. Just park here for a second. Thou does answer me. God will be faithful to complete what he started in you. Amen? He who began a good work will complete it to the day of Christ. I won't always understand what he's doing. (laughs) I don't understand all the twists and turns and ups and downs, but I know he's my good shepherd who laid down his life for me. Father, thank you for uh, this time in your word. This is some incredibly rich content, powerful, medicinal, (laughs) all about the prophetic picture of the cross, which would happen a thousand years later by the greater David who so loved his people. This is what he went through. And we get some glimpses of the suffering servant of God at the cross. What he was thinking, what he was praying, how he was feeling. It's an amazing insight. It's a a look behind the veil. And it's a powerful one, Lord, because it helps us understand that You know what we go through when we feel alone and abandoned and when the world uh, is such a crazy place and we have question marks in our soul and sometimes wonder about where you are and where we are. But you haven't gone anywhere. And I pray tonight we will re-enthrone you upon our hearts. We don't make you king, you are the king. We don't make you Lord, you're the Lord of lords and king of kings, but we can make you our Lord when we decide 
with your head and heart bowed in these closing moments, don't let a moment like this pass you by. If you've not met Jesus, if you don't know this suffering servant and this triumphant Savior, if you are not sure, God forbid, if you died tonight, you would be in heaven, make sure. He is a prayer away. Something this simple but this profound. Lord Jesus, and I want to encourage you to pray this if it's you. Lord Jesus, please save me. Thank you for what you suffered on that terrible cross. Thank you for taking my place, for bearing my sin and my punishment, for taking the wrath of God for me. Thank you that you did it because you love me. Thank you that you were willing to go through all that terrible stuff we, we read about tonight because you so care about my soul. You're the shepherd and guardian of my soul. I turn my life over to you. I repent of my sin. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior, and I ask you to be my King, my God, my Savior, my shepherd, my friend. Guide me, Lord. Teach me how to follow you, how to walk with you, how to trust you, how to bring you glory with my life. Father, thank you for those who have opened their hearts tonight, maybe rededicated their lives to you, Thank you for the wonderful saints that are here tonight who know you as their good shepherd and just needed some encouragement tonight to hang in there, uh, no matter what they may be feeling tonight, to know that you are going to finish what you started in their lives. Thank you for this church, uh, the beautiful body of Christ, the wonderful, faithful leadership. Thank you for the churches across Southern California tonight, the many ministries the many people of God that are fighting the good fight of faith and all really across our state. Lord, we need a revival desperately. We pray over our political leaders. We pray over the coming election. We pray over the church to awaken, to be revived. We pray for healing of our marriages if they're in trouble. We pray that we would repent of our sin because judgment begins in the house of God before it goes out to the world. So would you help us, Lord? Thank you that you walk amidst your people. Thank you that you're always strengthening us and giving us grace that we don't deserve. And I pray that you fill us up with your joy tonight, your love, a peace that passes understanding. May we just be just, uh, just cozying up close to you, Lord. As we close in this final song, I pray we'd experience the beauty of your presence in a fresh way, and that it would carry us through until we're together again. In Jesus' name, amen.